Friends, as we come now to God's word, a reminder to you that you've all been given a piece of paper that has a lot of blanks that I'd love you to take out a pen and fill them in. Uh, Each of those phrases there are designed to be a sort of a take home for you. So you've got a summary of what has been said and uh, there's even some pictures and things and you might try and work out why I have put those particular pictures at the bottom of each page as you go through it together. Let me lead us in prayer. We ask, Heavenly Father, that now as we come to your word, that by your Holy Spirit you would be pleased by your scriptures to help us understand who you are and your great plan for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, compared to other nations, Aussies are masters of the understatement. Uh, Not only do we keep people humble with our tall poppy syndrome, We also apply the same principles to ourselves. When I studied at Moore College, we had an annual review where students and faculty would entertain each other with skits and musical items. And one year, my mate Benny and I did a a skit called Masters of the Understatement. Uh, Benny had asked me a question, and then I'd reply with a classic sort of Aussie understatement. And then above us on the screen, with subtitles or surtitles, as they say at the opera, uh, it would explain exactly what was really happening behind the scenes. So, for example, he'd say to me, how's your family? And I'd say, yeah, not too bad. And the subtitle would come up. One kid's in hospital with appendicitis, another kid's been up all night teething and vomiting, and my wife's just broken her two feet. Then I'd turn to Benny and say... How are you going with your exam preparation? And he'd say, yeah, not too bad. And the screen would say, my computer crashed and I lost all my study notes and because I didn't enrol properly, I failed the whole year anyway. <laughs> and then he'd turn and say to me, how'd you go in that last essay? i say, yeah, okay. And the subtitle would say, I've got a high distinction and my lecturer wants to publish my essay in a journal and just give me a PhD straight away. Uh, This is kind of how we fly in Australia. Our tall poppy syndrome means that we are masters of the understatement and we will not let anyone get away with boasting about anything. But it's not like that in every other country. Uh, I once heard an academic, an Aussie academic, talk about when some US friends asked her about how she went in her PhD. She told the American, yeah, went all right. And the American said to her, oh, just all right? Oh, I'm so sorry to hear you didn't do very well. And she said, well, no, 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 I did brilliantly. I've got a high distinction and I've got a book publishing book, a book publishing deal. You see, because in the US, it seems that the boasting just seems to be natural. You know, these are the people with the red hats that say, make America great again. Corinth in the first century was a lot like the US. They loved to brag. Corinthians loved to brag about who they were and what they'd done, and they wanted to tell everyone about their achievements. And that put them on a collision course with Christianity. And we see that in the section of the Bible that we're looking at today in this fourth talk from 1 Corinthians. Because in chapter 1, which we'll see in a moment, it says, Therefore, as a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. Or this, Therefore, as the Scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. 
Now, this might be easy for Aussies, but really hard for Corinthians and probably for Californians as well. But to be honest, it's, it really is hard for everyone, isn't it? And that's because Christianity is all about Christ. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we've done. It's not about our achievements. It's all about what Christ has done for us. And it's not about what we've contributed to it. And even a hardcore, tall, poppy syndrome Aussie will find this hard to accept. Last week we heard, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. In other words, the thing that matters the most to us looks stupid to everybody else. We think the crucifixion of Christ is wonderful, but everyone else thinks it's weird. And that's the way that God works in this world. He turns our world upside down. What is wonderful is weird, and what is weird is wonderful. And last week's passage finished this way. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. This is the way that God's wisdom works in the world. And so if God's wisdom is like this, then what does it mean for those of us here who are his followers? Well, we look pretty stupid too. And what's more, we don't just look foolish and unimpressive. We don't just look it, we actually are it. Have a look at verse 26, our first verse today. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. In other words, most of them were nobodies. Not rich, not smart, not famous, not powerful. A whole bunch of people living average lives which would go unnoticed by most. Now... If you really want to offend a person in first century Corinth, what do you do? You call them a nobody. You say that they're average. But that's what the Corinthian Christians actually were like. It's not just what he was saying. But just because they were nobodies, it didn't stop God calling them to be his precious children. Paul addresses them as brothers and sisters, as equal members of his spiritual family. And then he tells them that it was in their nothingness that God chose them to be special. God chose these individual Corinthian people to be called by him. God chose to call each individual Corinthian Christian to be his special follower. He called each of them to be saved. He called each individual Christian to be saved by him. Now, it's worth pausing for a moment to see what this is saying. It is saying that each individual unimpressive human here has been personally called by God to salvation. God's not just urging people to come to him, trying to appeal to some individuals to find the gospel attractive and wise, because if that was the case, we'd all reject the gospel because it's foolish. That's what the last chapter's all been about, that if you're not in Christ, you think it's all stupid. 
Each and every follower of Jesus is only a follower of Jesus because God personally called us. And if he didn't call us, we'd never come. That's just one part of God's sovereignty in salvation. It's just one aspect of God's complete control in effectively calling us to come to Christ. But he didn't just call us. Have a look in verse 27. He also chose us. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. When he talks about things that the world considers foolish, he's talking about the things who are in the church in Corinth, the individual people. He chose foolish people, nobodies, to be his special children. It's not saying that God chose a group of people here. It's not saying that God chose all Christians as the church to be his people. It's actually personal. Right here it is individual. Now why am I making a big thing of this? It's because some people will say that God doesn't choose or call individuals to salvation. And the way that it works then is that the bits of the New Testament that speak about being called or chosen by God are interpreted by them to see it referring to the whole church. But that doesn't fit in with these verses, does it? God specifically chose his children. In fact, his love for us isn't just for his whole church, but it's for individual people he's called and chosen. Have a look at this other famous section from Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. This here is talking about his personal calling and choosing and predestination of his precious children. And it's talking about the right standing, the, as another way you might put it, the justification. As well as it's talking about the glorification that comes to each of his special individual children. In all of this, you need to see that you are personally precious to God. Those who are his people are precious to him. That's why he chose you and called you and did a miracle in your life. He made it possible for you to see the foolishness of the cross as being the greatest, wisest, most wonderful thing in the universe. And if he hadn't first acted in you, you would look at the cross and say it's stupid. If he hadn't deliberately acted in your life, if he hadn't deliberately called you and chosen you and predestined you to be justified and glorified, then those of you who are in Christ would still be, who are not in Christ, would still be spiritually blind and dead and heading to destruction. But why would he do this? Why would he choose nobodies to be special somebodies? 
It's so that God would bring shame to those unbelievers who think that they're wise. And so he chose the powerless people, like us, to bring the unbelievers shame. Have a look at this, verse 27b. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. Those who have power independently from God will be shamed. And, and shamed isn't just about looking a little bit silly or losing face. Um, as Kiampa and Rosner note in their commentary, they say, the shaming must be understood in the sense of being condemned by God in judgment. And then they, they identify a link here between shaming and judgment in Psalm 83, which they quote from. They say, Utterly disgrace them until they submit to your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and terrified forever. Let them die in disgrace. In other words, God chooses the powerless to disgrace the powerful. But not just that. He also chose the most nobody of nobodies to show that the winners are actually the losers because the true winners look like losers. Verse 28. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and he used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. Why would he do that? Why would he bring such intense humiliation to those who despise the cross? Why would he want to make the smarty pants of the world look so stupid? Well, here's the answer, verse 29. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. The reason he shames the powerful is so that he can make sure we never boast about our achievements in choosing God. I can never say, wasn't I clever to choose God? Because God chose me. I can never say, aren't I wise to decide to follow Jesus? Because God called me. Because if it was actually my independent choice to follow Jesus, then, then I could boast about being smart or sensitive or wise or even humble. But God foreknew me. He predestined me. He called me. He justified me and he's glorified me. God did the lot. And he also did this. Verse 30a, God has united you with Christ Jesus. From God has come our union with Christ. We are in Christ because of God. He did the lot. But it focuses here on what it means to be united with Christ Jesus, being in Christ. So many great things about being united with Christ. One of them is security. I kind of got a picture about, of about being united with Christ, kind of being like a dad. And, and, and there's a, his little son is really, really scared. And so he goes up to his son, grabs his hand and pulls him in. It's a winter's day and he's got a big coat on. And he pulls him inside the coat and the son grabs onto his leg and he sort of wraps him in the coat. And because he is now in his dad, he has union with his father. He, he, he now has all the protection he has all the security of being close to him, being as one with him. Another way that people have described union with Christ is sometimes being kind of in Christ's aeroplane. You're in him and where he goes and what he does, you go with him. Maybe it's a bit like being in Air Force One. 
You know, that, that's the plane that, that when there's wars happening on the ground, uh, some would say that it's the safest place in the whole world because up there it's got fighter planes around it and it never needs to go down. They're always filling it up with fuel. Some of you might say it's probably the most stupid place to be because every, everyone is a bad guy trying to shoot the plane down. I don't know. But, so the analogy may not quite work, but can you understand that by being united, by being in a safe place, you have that security, and that's what it's like being in Christ. But there's another benefit, and it's actually spelled out here more specifically in this time. And I don't think I would naturally say this is a benefit of being in Christ. I'd naturally go for that security thing or whatever. But it's actually this, 30B. It is for our benefit that God made Jesus to be wisdom itself. For a society that loved pure true wisdom now they can get it and it's found in christ if you have union with christ united with christ you will have union with true wisdom you literally become part of the ultimate wisdom god made jesus to be the very personification of wisdom but what does it look like if you were to say to a random person what do you think you would use words to what words would you use to describe someone who is truly wise? You, you yourself might think of someone you know who says, that is a really wise person. She's very wise or he's very wise. How would you describe them? Well, I did a Google search and I found a LinkedIn post by a guy called Geordie Alamani. He had 10 common characteristics of someone who was wise. He said, cultivated, compassionate, good listeners, nonconformists, Open-minded, problem-centred, reflective, humourful. I don't think that's a word, but anyway. Uh, unselfish, willing. They were the ten words that he came up to describe what a truly wise person would be like. What words would you use? Use some of those? Other ones, maybe? Well, coming up next in the scriptures, there are actually three words that are used to help us understand the wisdom that is in Christ. And it says it here. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. And he freed us from sin. Or slightly more literally, the three words are, he is our righteousness, he is our holiness, and he is our redemption. Let's have a look at those three things here. The first is that Christ is our righteousness. He made us right with God. Or in other words, he is our righteousness. By becoming united with the one who is truly wise, we get all the benefits of his righteousness. Which is another way of saying that the not guiltiness of Jesus becomes our not guiltiness. So when he looks at us, he doesn't look at me and my sin. He looks at Jesus' sin, of which there's none. He doesn't look at my guilt. He looks at Jesus' guilt, which is none. He doesn't look at my unrighteousness. He looks at Jesus' righteousness. Uh, righteousness is a legal term. It's basically what judges say when you're not guilty. Justified. You're not guilty. If you are united with Christ, this aspect of his wisdom gives you righteousness. The second is holiness. Holiness is a word that's used to describe God's people, separated from the world. Um, we are people who are not 
made impure by the things around us, but are actually seen to be pure, holy in that sense. Now, we're not naturally like that. But when we are in Christ, that is how we are seen. The, the holiness of Jesus is now our holiness instead of the unholiness that is actually within us. And the third thing is that Christ is our redemption. He has freed us from sin. He's redeemed us. If you were a slave in the first century and someone took a liking to you, they could say, I reckon this guy should be free. Here you go. Have a a slab of money and you will receive payment for him and he can then be redeemed. That's what redemption was like. And here we see that Christ is our righteousness, our holiness, and because of the cost of the cross, he has paid our sin. He has redeemed us and now we are We are redeemed and set free from slavery to sin. Amazing, isn't it? I don't know if they... We certainly didn't see those three words, righteousness, holiness and redemption, in the LinkedIn list. But that's how it is for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, united with him. And what did we do to do that? How did we make ourselves righteous? How did we make ourselves holy? How did we make ourselves... Redeemed? It's a silly question, really, isn't it? Because we didn't. God did it all. If God hadn't chosen us and called us, we'd still be thinking the cross of Christ is crazy. But in his kindness, he turned it all upside down. And because of that, verse 31, therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. If it was your choice alone for you to follow God, then you could boast about your choice. But because of God's work in the lives of his children, it means we can only boast in him. And it's right at this point here that Paul switches over into personal mode. He starts talking about himself. He's writing this letter that he's speaking out loud and someone, Sosthenes or whatever, is writing it down and he suddenly gets really personal about his relationship with them. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. He says, I wasn't like all those other church planters. I wasn't like all those great preachers. I didn't use all the fancy words and everything like that. I didn't use any of that sort of stuff. Instead, I decided, verse 2, that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Or the verse that's in my memory because of an older Bible, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Paul spoke about nothing except Christ and him crucified. That's it. I wonder if he might have walked in there to to Corinth and said, I'm going to work out what kind of message is going to be well-received here in Corinth. I know what I'll do. I'll commission some market research. I'll get a whole lot of people to sit in a big circle and I'll get professionals to ask them questions about the things that they think that society will receive well. And they talk a little bit about the message of Jesus here and they say, which of the bits do you think people will like? And they go back and forth and they do all of their things and tests and stuff like that and surveys. And I reckon they would look at the results and they'd say, 
Ah, they really like the bits where Jesus sits down with the kiddies and says nice things to them. Or really likes the bit where Jesus stands up in front of a lot of people and says really wise things that are, that are deeply inspiring and help us in our troubles. Or they, they don't really understand it. It's a bit, bit, bit controversial, but, but the bit where Jesus at least did something nice to someone who was sick or something over there. I mean, healing, I don't know about that. But you know, let's go on that sort of stuff. Get that message out there and it'll work really, really well. They might say, well, what do you reckon about, you know, the Easter stuff, the, the, you know, the cross thing and, the, and the, the dying on the cross? And all, uh, how, Shall I talk about that a bit? Nah, that won't preach. Nah, no, no, no. I, I just don't think, I think that'll be too offensive for people. I don't think that will connect in with our world very well. Just do, do more of the stuff for the kind of like, you know, smiley and wavy Jesus. Can I have more of that? Because this idea that your leader, your ruler, your king would be executed and humiliated and hung naked on a cross and shown to be stupid and crazy? Paul, I don't think that's the one to lead with. Go with the nice sort of cuddly stuff. But for Paul, the crucifixion was his hobby horse. He made the decision that he would just keep talking about the crucifixion, the crucifixion, the crucifixion, the cross, the cross, the cross. You stick him in front of a crowd and it wouldn't be long before he'd be talking about the cross of Christ. I I think that is my temptation as well, is sometimes to say, look, all the whole Jesus dying on the cross and everything like that. Well, I don't know if I might leave with that. Maybe I'll start more about, you know, Jesus is all about life and things like that. Which Jesus actually said, so it's a good thing. But why is it that we don't naturally lead with it's all about the cross? And I think it's because we are inclined to talk about the nice things rather than the things that really get to the heart of the truth. It's why when we have our carol service on Christmas Eve, we'll talk about the birth of Jesus at Christmas, sure. But it won't be long before we'll be talking about the cross. Because even at Christmas we need to talk about Easter. And that is because the most important thing Jesus did was die. Sure, I mean, he needed to be born as a man and he needed to rise from the dead, but the crux was the cross. The heart of his mission was his crucifixion. And that is why Paul zeroed in on what mattered most. And so you must think that he had some sort of bulletproof kind of personality that he just loved being punched up. Hey, I'll talk about the cross. Bring it on. But what does he say? I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. It's a very personal note that he's giving to them. It seems that he didn't have all of the great skills of public speaking In fact, it seems likely he actually had a specific weakness. We don't know what it is. Maybe it might have been a stutter. Imagine if the Apostle Paul, the one who was the one who would be proclaiming the message of the cross, got up in front of people and couldn't really speak very well. Or maybe it was a problem with his eyes. There's an idea maybe. Or maybe it was a problem with something else. We don't know the details, but there's something about him where people would say, Oh, can we get someone else to do the talk at church? Because he's just not really good up front. He was timid. 
He was trembling. He was weak. But his weakness was matched to the cross. Have a look at verse 4. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. The great Apostle Paul said he was plain when he got into the pulpit. He wasn't one of those guys with great hair and a great voice and great teeth. He was really quite unimpressive. Which was a really good match, wasn't it? If you're going to talk about the crucifixion all the time, it's not a pretty sight. It doesn't matter how pretty you sound. And this is why Paul didn't really fit in very well with the people of Corinth. And it's why they didn't really get his ministry. Because ultimately he was just on about relying on the Holy Spirit's power. That's what he says. What does that mean? Some people might say, well, that meant that he used lots of signs and wonders and miracles and things to make the preaching more powerful. But it can't be that because that's the very opposite of what he's just been talking about. He's gone out of his way to say that the message of the cross is weak. And so my preaching is weak. Oh, and by the way, here are some really spectacular, hey, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. It's not that kind of thing, right? He's just like, all I've got is my voice and not a very good one like that. And it couldn't be signs and wonders because he just slammed the Jews for demanding signs and wonders. He's not going to use them as well. So what's he talking about when he says the Holy Spirit's power? Well, whatever it is, we can see that the use of the Holy Spirit is related to the speaking of his words. Speaking that causes deep, genuine change in those who hear it. Just kind of like the Old Testament prophets who would receive the message from God and say, oh, okay, I've got to say those really tough things to these people and I'll probably get beaten up for it. And they often did. He knew, the Apostle Paul did, that the word of God brought great power. But there's a little bit more to this. To this, It seems likely that Paul is actually alluding to an Old Testament book called Zechariah. In chapter 4 it says... This is, then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It's not by force or by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. This Old Testament prophecy was all about the foundation of a temple. And in that situation, as it was, as the Apostle Paul was building upon a foundation, it seemed weak. But in both cases, it was the powerful Holy Spirit that brought about deep impact even though the ministry seemed weak. How specifically did that look for Paul? Well, we flick to 1 Thessalonians. He says a similar thing with a bit more detail. Chapter 1, he says, For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with the words, but also with power. Same kind of thing. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. How did he show the power of the Holy Spirit in preaching? How did we see the Holy Spirit's power? He was in their assurance. It's as he spoke the word of God. The Holy Spirit, he himself, God, did a miracle in their life so that they would see what was wise was really wise. And not unwise like they normally would. That showed the power. 
and they were so overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit that would give them that assurance that they were prepared to suffer for it. You hold a gun to someone's head and say, renounce the faith, and they say, I will not renounce the faith. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what they did. So why would he do this ministry this way, in all of this? What he says it this way. I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. In the end, he used the weak-sounding words of a weak-sounding preacher. But in the weakness of the words was the power of the Holy Spirit. These weak words meant that the nothings of the world inherited everything. These are the weak words that we came to trust in when we followed Jesus. And these are the weak words of the gospel that we believed when we repented of our sins and turned to Christ. It may be for you that you've gone through your life thinking that the words of the cross, the whole crucifixion thing is just a bit silly and so are those Christians, to be honest. And it may even be right now in this room or online as you hear these words that the powerful Holy Spirit is leading you to the point where what seems stupid is actually wise. That's the work of the Lord in you now. And so if that is true, then do what he says here. Trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. We all like to think of ourselves as something. We all like to think of ourselves as wise or powerful or influential. But friends, that is not where our worth is found. I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light. But I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross.